Hey, good morning, church. It's so good to be with you. Casey and I missed you last week, so I want to welcome all those who are here. I want to welcome the guests. I want to welcome uh, those who are joining us on live stream this morning. Let me uh, show you just a few items. It may be hard for you to see some of this, but here I'm holding a plate of, of steak. How many steak fans do we have in the house? Just a show of hands. This steak is cooked medium, the way Jesus eats steak, all right? <laughs> not too bloody because the Bible says don't do that, and not too well done because you don't, don't want to ruin the taste. But I bet we have some steak fans here. I bet we also have, how many bread lovers do we have here? <clears throat> and this isn't just any bread. These are three of my favorite words, garlic, Texas toast, <laughs> all put together <laughs> into a piece of bread. Me and the boys, just we don't understand when there are times where Casey cooks spaghetti or lasagna or something and there's no garlic Texas toast. Like it's a, it's a must in our house. And then I have a plate of, of broccoli. Any broccoli fans in the house? <laughs> now, now here's the thing. Most of us when we eat, now maybe some of you do this, but I bet few of you ever just cook a steak or a piece of meat and that's the only thing you eat is just meat. Now, I could eat only meat every day, and I may not live very long. I love meat. But most of you probably don't do that. And, and I hope all of you, no one here, I hope no one has a diet where the only thing you eat every single day is bread. I don't think that's going to be good for you. And, and some of you who are even vegetarians may love broccoli, but I bet rarely do you ever only cook broccoli and put it on a plate, and that's the only thing you eat. You may have a mixture of vegetables and other things on a plate, but rarely do you just have that. Most of us, whenever we eat, we have a, a gathering of a few different things on a plate. Where there may be meat, there may be vegetables, there may be bread, but it's a few different things. So we're in a series right now called Taboo. And if we're not careful what happens in life is when it comes to issues, we do something like this. Where there is only one source that we put on a plate to think about that issue through. Whether it's a media, a newspaper, a friendship, whatever it may be, there may only be one source, but few of us do that. And what happens a lot of times is we have an issue, and we come to our conviction on our foundation of how we base our decision or our conviction on that issue, and then we go to the Bible to defend the issue instead of going to, Bible, to the Bible to be informed. So sometimes we come to the Bible and we're just looking not to be informed by something. We just want ammunition to support our argument so we can prove, the, prove other people wrong. I want to talk this morning about what it means for us to be well-informed people of God. Who can hold on a plate, a few different things, so that we're well-informed. We're encouraging and embracing holistic spirituality. So I'm in a four-week series called Taboo where uh, I've talked about sexual abuse a few weeks ago in the Me Too movement, and a couple of weeks ago I talked about mental health and suicide, depression, anxiety. <clears throat> and this is, a, this is a tough, tough sermon series, not just to write, but for you to listen to. Because I know when it comes to it, when it comes down to it, we are all selective moralists in some kind of way. And what it means is this, is there's a number of issues out there, and most of us prioritize them in some kind of way, and I don't think any of us prioritize them the same way. So we have one or two issues that we may lift above other issues. And this isn't always bad. This can be good. So even when it comes to the three I've talked about right now in this series, I've talked about sexual abuse and mental health. And today I want to talk about immigration. There are a lot of other issues that we need to talk about and we need to be informed about. I just don't think we need to spend 15 weeks to do it right now. 
But I know there are other issues that are really passionate for, for many of you. For, uh, marriage and same-sex marriage, LGBTQ, abortion, the environment, the list goes on. But right now we're just taking a few. And today I want to dive into one on immigration. Let me just remind you of a few slides and a few things I've placed in front of you over the last few weeks. And here are slides you've seen now for the fourth time if you've been here for all four of these, these sermons. And one, and I believe this to the core, that we as the people of God are at our best when we're clinging and pressing into God while paying just enough attention to the world to know how to navigate kingdom life. And we are at our worst when we are clinging and pressing into cultural and political ideologies while paying just enough attention to God to make us feel righteous. The second is this, you've seen this now four times, is that most of us know how we would fill in this statement. We value people as long as, and you know, how, you know what you would put in the blank. And thirdly is this, the verse that's probably quoted more than any other verse in the Bible. People who aren't even Christians have seen this in some kind of way. But John 3.16 does not for God so reluctantly love the world, or God kind of loved the world. Or God kind of loved you, but held a vote in heaven to see if they were going to allow you into heaven or not. And the vote came out 53 to 47, so they let you in. It's that for God so loved the world. And if this is the way God thinks about the world, what does it mean for the people of God that have the same kind of heart that our God has? So today I know I'm jumping into a, a difficult discussion where even when you knew I was going to preach on this, you've come this morning, filters are up. Some of you may already have an email ready for me that you have already written. You just haven't hit send yet on it. The U.S. is changing. In the United States, 50 years from now, it's going to look a lot differently than the United States looked like 50 years from now. And it's going to look a lot differently than it looks today. The fastest growing group in the U.S. are Latinos. And, and if you just think Memphis, a lot of times people think Memphis, they think white and black. White people, black people. We have three adopted schools here, Shelby Oaks, Kingsbury Middle School, Kingsbury High School. And now Kingsbury Middle School, which I believe it's about three miles away from us. Now, the majority of students at Kingsbury Middle, which means the majority at Kingsbury High very soon, will be Latinos. This is right here in our community. So, when it comes to immigration, I think it's important for us to know the difference between an immigrant and a refugee. So, just really quickly, and I've read numerous books and articles, and, and uh, a book called Christians at the Border was really helpful uh, for me. And, and they define it like this. The, a refugee is those who have fled their country of origin out of fear of persecution because of their race, religion, social standing, political views, and the list can go on. An immigrant are those who have moved to another country on their own will and are usually seeking lengthy or permanent residence. Now, in this room, a lot of us are people who come from immigrants. I don't think anyone here has been in the United States on this land and this place for thousands of years. Now, some of you in this room didn't you are not part of a, a family who chose to come here out of your own goodwill. You were forced to come here. First Peter does say this. For anyone who is a baptized believer in God, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you. He's talking to the people of God. I urge you as foreigners and aliens, as foreigners and exiles, foreigners and strangers, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify our God on the day he visits us. Peter calls Christians. He calls us foreigners and strangers. Yet a lot of times we don't behave like our focus is on our, our eternal home, we behave like this is the only life that matters. Now, I specifically use the word behave because a lot of times Christians speak like what matters most is the eternal home. 
But the way we often behave is like this is our home forever. I want to show you just a little research that I think is helpful. And when I first saw this a year and a half ago, maybe this first research I saw was a few years ago. I thought, I mean, that right there alone is why the church needs to talk about something like immigration. Pew Research, and if you'll, you'll just keep it on this slide just for a moment. Pew Research, they do nationwide research. I don't believe Pew Research is specifically to Christians. They're just looking to get a, a good uh, a survey with people from different generations, different backgrounds. And they, they did this survey. This was done in 2010. So I know this was around eight or nine years ago. And it's where religion matters most. So what I'm about to show you is this. They were asked to, to, to put the percentage citing religion as the most important influence that, that forms their opinion on certain issues. So the percentage is how religion impacts that decision. So religion could be the way they interpret the Bible, the way they think about God. If it's someone who doesn't believe in God, maybe the way they think about a higher power. So, so that's how I think, I think you get it. If you'll go to this, the next slide. So, for instance, when it comes to marriage, when it came to marriage and same-sex marriage, and how the government defines marriage, the percentages are here. I know I could have put together a much cleaner slide, so forgive me. I don't, I don't do this stuff all the time. 35% of the people said religion impacts how they think about marriage. For liberals who define themselves as liberals, it's 5%. You can see conservatives with 60 For abortion, you can see the percentages on there. Now, Pew Research did this for a number of issues. The environment, economics, there's a lot of other things. But So there's that. If you go to the next slide, here's how people answered when it came to government assistance to the poor and immigration. Is that those who said religion most impacts how they think about it. For everyone total, only 10% said religion is the most important thing when they think about go, how, they, how they think about government assistance to the poor. And only 7% with immigration. Look how low those numbers are. For liberals, 12% for the poor, 8% immigration. Conservatives, 4% when it comes to government assistance to the poor, only 5%. We're talking about 92, 93, 95% of people cited something other than religion that most impacts how they think about an issue. Does this raise a red flag for anyone here? Like maybe we should talk about this a little bit more. Let me show you the next one. Lifeway Research in 2015. Lifeway Research. Now Lifeway is born out of Lifeway uh, Bible Bookstore. Lifeway is a Southern Baptist organization, which means Lifeway is a more conservative organization. If you write books and you take uh, progressive liberal stances on certain things like marriage, and you're not going to be sold in Lifeway. I like Lifeway. They've sold all three of my books in Lifeway. I like them. <clears throat> and in 2015, Lifeway, if you go to the next slide, here's what they did. They researched people, over 1,000 people, who are connected to Lifeway. So there's a good chance if you're filling out a survey for Lifeway research, you, are, you're, you lean more conservative. And the researchers ask evangelicals, and just quickly, the, the way they define evangelicals, most people, if evangelicals who uh, are serious about personal conversion, they're serious about evangelism, they believe the Bible is uh, uh, the, the word of God, they stand on the Bible. So researchers ask evangelicals to list which factor has most influenced their beliefs about immigration. And here's the response. If you go to the next slide, 12% of people chose the Bible. Here's the thing. People were given options to circle. It wasn't just a blank where they filled it in. They were given options to list and identify, to circle, to bubble in 
What, is, what most informs their view on immigration, only 12% chose the Bible. And if you go to the next slide, only 2% chose the church. Which means most people are saying that they've never heard their priesters, pastors, or leaders talk or study about immigration within a public setting in a church. And when it comes to, I mean, just do the math. 88% of people said that something other than the Bible most informs their view on immigration and if you just add those two up, that's still a pretty high percentage of people. And the three that were the highest were uh, media and news, relationships with people, your breakfast group, your lunch group, and relationships with immigrants. And Leith Anderson, who uh, is one of the leaders in the evangelical world, said this, the sad part of this research on immigration is that American evangelicals are more influenced by the media than by their Bibles and their churches combined. We need to turn off our TVs, and we need to open up our Bibles. So this is what I want to do today. If you, yeah, thank you. We can, <laughs> thank you. We need some of that sometimes. I don't need it from me. We, we applaud because this is really important. What does the Bible say about, and here's how this sermon's going to go. I want to help answer three things. I do not feel it's the call of God on me today to create national policy on immigration. I don't feel it is my call today to tell you exactly how to think about the wall. I want to help open up the Bible so that you can have a foundation so that more people in this church, so the people in this church won't just be the 12%, but that we will dive in the Word of God to see what it is God has to say and that we're not just being influenced by what other people tell us to, to think and we're not just drinking the Kool-Aid of the world, but we're, we're diving into the, the heart of God. I want to talk about what does the Bible have to say about the immigrant. And I specifically want to talk some about the immigrant, not just immigration, because I don't want to make this just an issue. We're talking about people. What does the Bible have to say about the law, the law of the land, and what does the Bible have to say about love? So let me start out, and let's talk about what the Bible has to say about the immigrant. Now, there are four Hebrew words that are often translated the immigrant, foreigner, sojourner, alien, stranger, one of those words. And there, there are four words, and this is how they sound in English. Uh, and I, I didn't have all the punctuation that needs to be on them, but the one that is used the most is the word ger. It's around 100 times. Now, in this sermon today, I have more slides I'm about to show you than any sermon I've ever preached in my preaching career. So I want you just for a moment to thank Suzanne, who is up there trying to keep up with all my slides today. Can we just tell her thank you? <laughs> and Suzanne, if you mess up, I'll, I'll call you Stephanie, so everyone thinks it's, it's Stephanie that's doing it. No. Suzanne, thank you, for, thank you for partnering with me today. Gur is used around 100 times. I'm not going to show you all 100. But around 92 times this word is used. Now, I also think it's important for us to ask, like, why in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, why would someone be an immigrant? Why would someone be in a foreigner? And the answer is a number of things. But a lot of times people were sojourners in the Old Testament because either they were forced out of certain places, they were exiles. But a big part of it was hunger and famine. So they would live on the land, and if they experienced a long battle with famine, then a family or even an entire community would uproot themselves and go somewhere else. Now, in the law, in the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, when God talks about the foreigner, it's a lot of people who came out of Egypt. They're Egyptians who came with the Israelites to travel into freedom. But as the Old Testament progresses, it's not just people who are from Egypt. It's a lot of different people. So I think it's careful for us to know that. Here are three truths about what the Bible has to say about the immigrant. And I want to list these, and I'm encouraging you right now. Take notes. I'm going to be going pretty fast. 
So take notes, have your neighbor take notes, then share notes, take pictures of the screen. I'm going to read a lot of Bible this morning. So if you're taking notes, you do not have time to write out Deuteronomy or Leviticus. So write Deut, write Lev, Levi, something like that. It will help you out, all right? And I, and I think it's careful because in a way you are trusting me and I'm asking you to trust me because I don't have time to read everything the Bible has to say about the foreigner. So in a way, I've chosen certain things to place in front of you today. And what's really hard when we come to the Bible about something like immigration is we automatically want to read the Bible and then interpret that for what it means today. The Old Testament wasn't written to the United States of America. The Old Testament wasn't written for a 20th or 21st century context. So I'm encouraging you as you hear me read today and as you go home and read later, let the Bible speak. And then let's discern how we apply it in our current context. You got it? Number one is this. When it comes to what the Bible has to say about the immigrant, Israel was to be gracious to the foreigner. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, this is right after the Ten Commandments. God says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19, it says, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 16, 11 through 12, it says this, And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. And then he lists, here's, here's what this community is made up of. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. Now I want to stay there just for a moment. I want to highlight a couple of things. A lot of times, especially in the Old Testament, you don't just read about the widow and the orphans. It's the widow, orphans, and foreigner. And somehow that's kind of been forgotten because I think for some people, maybe one of the reasons is this, that we know that widows don't choose to become widows. And orphans don't choose to become orphans, but foreigners often choose to become foreigners, whatever, whatever the reason may be. But what you also see in all three verses I've already read is something God comes back to time and time again in the Bible is you used to be one of those, so you better treat people with kindness because you used to be there. You were a foreigner in Egypt, and you know what it's like to be mistreated, so you need to make sure you treat people with better care. The second truth is this, when it comes to what the Bible has to say about the, the, the immigrant. Number two is love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Of all things for Jesus to quote when he's asked about the greatest command, this is one of them. Jesus quoted and referenced Leviticus. The book many of you are struggling to get through right now in your Bible reading plans. Many people call Leviticus the place where Bible reading plans go to die, Right? Yet for Jesus, of all things to reference and choose from when it comes to talking about the greatest command, what it means to live, he, he points to Leviticus 19. Now, in Leviticus 19, a few verses later in verse 34, it says this, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And the third truth is this, God's heart bends towards the helpless. And I'm about to read through a number of passages about this. God's heart bends to the helpless. God's heart bends toward 
the poor and the oppressed. Let me just show you. In Psalm 146, 6 through 9, it says this. God is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigners and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. In Exodus 20.10, this is in the Ten Commandments. This is in the third commandment when God, or fourth commandment, when God is command, giving commands about the Sabbath. And he says this, on it, on the Sabbath, you shall do, not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. If you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, when God is giving the law, the foreigner is involved and is asked to participate in the holy days and holy festivals. Listen to this. Here are a few things that come up in a very short uh, just in a few pages in the Bible. In Leviticus 19.10, it says this, Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I'm the Lord your God. A few verses later, in Leviticus 23, God comes back to the same point. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is not just given handouts. If you read through the Bible, if you read through the first five books in the Bible, God is giving responsibility to foreigners and strangers. Yet he's making sure that those who are in need, that the people of God are commanded that you care for them. In Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, it says, When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what, rem what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do so. Do you see some of these resounding things? It's like God is saying over and over again, here are some things I need you to live out in your life. And then you get to some warnings. And here are some warnings from God that are spread out over a thousand years to his people. In Deuteronomy 24, it says this, Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. You pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and they are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. In Jeremiah 22, 3, it's, this is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. In Ezekiel 22, God goes off in Ezekiel 22. All right, he's going off on a lot of things. In verse 7, it's this. And you, and you they have treated father and mother with contempt... In you they have oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. And in verse 29, it's the people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. And in Malachi 3, 5, it says this. So I will come to you, uh, I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Some strong warnings, right? Now, here's the thing with the Bible. 
is that for a lot of people, what we have to keep in mind is it's not just that we use the Bible or read the Bible, it's how we do it. And when it comes to how we use the Bible, how we read the Bible, how we use the Bible to inform things, we have to be really careful how we treat the Bible. Because the way a lot of Christians, sometimes the way some Christians treat the Bible, does more damage to the truth of the Bible than if they were just silent. Have you ever misused the Bible in your life? And I've seen the Bible misused when it comes to immigration. I've seen this on social media. And I've had some people even send me something like this. That Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. it says this. I look for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. This is not referencing Donald Trump and the wall in America in the 21st century. No. Now, to keep Ezekiel 22 in context, it's this. I just read you what verse 29, chapter 22 says. Which is that the orphan, does, I mean, the, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner deserve justice. And the very next verse is, it's about Ezekiel, who's in a captivity, who's, God's using this image of a wall and a prophet sitting on the wall to hand out warnings to people, and he's not handing out warnings to those who are from the outside doing the oppressing. He's handing out warnings to the people of God, trying to warn them of what it means to live a righteous life. That's Ezekiel 22. In Revelation 21, 12, I've seen this a few times. I've seen well-known megachurch pastors reference this in support of a wall. It's that I had a great high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. And I don't think that's how heaven's going to work. Do you really think heaven's going to need a wall one day because heaven's going to be under pressure? I don't think so. But then what happens is this. That other people go on reading Revelation 21, and those who are in favor of more open borders, and maybe they don't like the wall, will say, well, yeah, but in verse 25 of Revelation 21, it says, and no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. We have got to treat the Bible with care. To make sure that when we use the Bible, we're trying to honor what the Bible says to who it says it to. Now, let me say this just for a moment, because I think this needs to be said. There are some Christians who are in support of a wall. And they're supportive of a wall because they love America and they think having a wall will secure the border. And there are some Christians who believe this and they are not racist and they are not bigots. Right? Now, are there some Christians who want a wall who are racist and bigots? Yeah, but not all of them are. There are a number of people, and I know them, and some of you are them, who you think a wall would be really good for our country. And you're not a racist and you're not a bigot. And there are some people who don't think, some Christians who don't think a wall is the best idea. And it doesn't mean that they don't love our country or that they don't want what's best for us or they don't care about security. What I'm trying to push us for in this series taboo and especially today is this church, quit falling in the traps of polarization. It happens way too often. It's a trap. We buy into it. And it doesn't lead to the unity of God or to the mission of Christ. And when we buy into this kind of polarization, where we just immediately put people in camps, and if they're not in my camp, there's only one other camp I can put them in, then not only does it, it hinders the mission of God in the world, and it ruins our witness. We've got to do better. Now, all of us are guilty of projecting things upon people. We do this. If you're walking into a mall or you're walking to a restaurant or some social place, and in front of you was a picture of this, a group of guys wearing Tom Brady jerseys, you may not care anything about football, 
Yet there's probably something you're going to think about those people without knowing their names or where they're from or who they are. It's just how we roll, right? If you're passing by this restaurant right here, which I've never, if you go to the next image, which I've never eaten there because I'm not a vegan. I'm a Christian, all right? Uh, <laughs> I'm just playing. <laughs> I'm just, just messing. <laughs> but it's, some of you are there, and it's okay. I just know in Acts chapter 10 when that sheet comes down for Peter, it's not veggies hanging over for that sheet. It's God saying, eat some meat, all right? Uh, but if we saw some of our friends or people walking in there, there's certain things we project upon people. It's just, it's, uh, have you, look at this next bumper sticker. And I just chose one. Have you ever seen Christian bumper stickers? And it, like you just see, have you ever seen a Christian bumper sticker and it embarrasses you? You're like, please take that off your car. It doesn't help the cause of Christ in the world. But I bet this often happens in your life too. If you're in a drive-thru somewhere or you're going somewhere and there's a bumper sticker of Make America Great Again or a bumper sticker of Coexisted or a bumper sticker of Bernie Sanders without even knowing who that person is, there's certain things you already think about that person. It's just, it's how we work sometimes. If you're driving behind a car, if you go to this next image, and Suzanne, I know you're an Alabama fan, so do not keep it on this for the rest of this sermon. All right? If you see that, there's certain things you think about people. Some people think Roll Tide National Championships. Some think people think that's an egotistical person. Maybe some people think academics. I don't know. If Lee Brown was ever with me, and many of you remember Lee. If Lee was ever with me and he saw someone wearing an Alabama sweatshirt, it did not matter who they were. Lee was going to hug them. If Lee saw someone wearing a University of Tennessee shirt, Lee was going to go up and it didn't matter who they are. He was going to tell UT jokes to them. That's just how he worked. And what often happens is we project upon people. I've talked with immigrants in Memphis who some of them have stories of how they have been racially profiled. Some of them tell stories of just shopping in a place like Kroger and having complete strangers who will just go off on them because they speak Spanish to their relatives. And we project upon people and we've got to make sure that our beginning place our beginning place, when we see whoever is in front of us, whoever the stranger is, whoever the other person is, our beginning place can never be going to the worst place in our minds or even white, black, or brown. The beginning place is this is a person who is created by God, who is loved by God, who is cared for by God. That has to be the starting place. So these three points that I just went through have to be present. No matter how you think about immigration... When it comes to how you think about the Bible, you've got to at least consider these things right here. And now I want to go a little quicker through these next couple of ones. What does the Bible have to say about the law? And there are a number of places I could go to, but the one most people go to is Romans 13, 1 through 7. Where it says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. 
Whenever Paul talks about the law of the land, when Peter does in 1 Peter 2, they always come short of talking about worshiping the emperor, which the law of the land required. Now, here's the thing. In the Bible, there were laws in the land. And every country today has laws that are to be honored. Now, for the next two minutes, I'm going to go through a quick history. Some of you love history. You're going to love this. You can fact check me later. I'm going to do my best. Hispanic migration. So when we think about immigration today, it, immigration, it, 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 there are a lot of people throughout the world who are immigrants. For us in our country, primarily right now, we're talking about Latinos and Hispanics. Hispanic migration began in our country in 1848. That there had been this move to expel and to remove Chinese workers. The labor pool then, a lot of them were Chinese. And then there were some laws put into place where people wanted to keep Chinese women from coming to America to have babies. They didn't want the Chinese to grow. So as the Chinese were removed and excluded, then it opened the door for another immigrant people to come into the U.S. The Treaty of Guadalupe and Hidalgo happened in 1848 which ended the Mexican-American War. Mexico ceded to the U.S., California, Utah, and some of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming. Now, since then, in 2011, the Senate passed, um, uh, the Senate passed resolution to apologize to China for the day, way they were treated over 150 years ago. But what happened from 1848 on was this. The American government didn't really know where to put immigration. For a long time, it was handled by the state. But in 1875, the Supreme Court decided, respons- it, they decided the responsibility needed to be with the federal government. In 1891, it was part of the Treasury Department. In 1903, it was the Department of Commerce and Labor. In 1913, it was the Department of Labor. 1933, it was the Immigration of Naturalization Service. In 1940, it was the Department of Justice. In 2003, Homeland Security. It was like hot potato. Because nobody really didn't, wanted to know this is such a complex issue throughout the history of our country. We haven't really known and we've tried to do things and, and things have changed. The U.S. Border Patrol was founded in 1924, almost 100 years ago. In 1954, and some of you may remember this, during a time of suspicion about almost anything foreign, there was an operation launched in the U.S. that was called Operation Wetback which was launched in parts of California, Texas, and Arizona. And it was an attempt to apprehend and to deport anyone who was here illegally. And over a million people were either apprehended, deported, or chose to leave on their own will in the 1950s. The Immigration Reform and Control Act was passed in 1986, which many would say is the most comprehensive legislation ever developed, at least in our lifetime, if not in the lifetime of the, the, of the United States. Since then, there have been some things that have come about. The Immigration Act of 1990, which increased sanctions, strengthened the border, made becoming a citizen a little more difficult, but also urged hardworking people to come to the U.S. And then DACA measure, which was passed in 2012 to protect some of those who were in this country as children, though they were illegal or undocumented. Today in our country, we have over 50 million Latinos who are here. We have somewhere in the, in the area of probably 10 to 15 million people who are in our country undocumented. Hispanics, Latinos are now the largest minority group. And the question the church has to ask, and it's hard to come to the answer for this, is what is our role and responsibility in caring for our neighbors? Because there are laws. And it's good for us to know the laws. I'm not an expert in the law. A few of you are. But it's good for us to know that it's not illegal to seek asylum at the border. It is illegal 
to come into this country without going through the process. If you're here illegally, undocumented, what is the crime? Is it a federal crime? Is it a misdemeanor? It's good to know some of these things. If you are here illegally, undocumented, is there anything that protects you? Because there are laws that protect them. And what does it mean for the church? We do have some laws, and we need to know what the laws are. And encourage people who may be undocumented. We need to know the laws so we can help them get right with the law. If you take Romans 13 seriously, you've also got to look at the end of Romans 12, which says this, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, and if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone." The law of the land does matter. So whatever your view on immigration is, you need to take seriously what the Bible has to say about it. And we've got to take seriously the laws of the land. And thirdly, let me just speak quickly into this. Is what does the Bible have to say about love? And where do you even begin with that? It's like from beginning to end, we know that the heart of, I believe God, the love of God is what drives God more than the glory of God. It's that God loves the world. God loves people. I think the place most people go when it comes to immigration is the story of Jesus and the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Which is a story Jesus tells because somebody came to Jesus asking a question. In verse 25 of Luke 10, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus and said, Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to test, justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to respond with this story of the Good Samaritan. In which the radical call of this Good Samaritan is not that you're the good person and who's in the ditch that you have to help. It's that if you're down in the ditch, who is the last person in the world you would want to open your eyes and see standing over you. When it comes to the Bible... How we think about the immigrant. And I'm not holding this up as an illustration for you to choose which one you think is what the Bible has to say about immigration. Which one you think is the law of the land. And which one you think is the love of God. I just want to challenge people to hold a plate that can hold all those things. Romans 13 and the law of the land isn't the only thing that needs to inform how you think about immigration. And Luke 10 and the Good Samaritan is not the only thing that needs to form how you think about immigration. It's what does the Bible and what does the heart of God have to say about the immigrant? What's the law of the land and what does the love of God mean? How do we live this out? So let me leave you with four things quickly. Four things to take home with you. When it comes to the immigrant, number one, be biblically informed Christians. Which is what I've tried to talk about today and push for. Number two is this, begin in the right place. And the starting place with people is that people are loved by God, created by God. They want to be redeemed by God. What this looks like in my life is sometimes if I'm in line with someone and I'm tempting to project upon them, and I can't say I do this every single time, but I try to pray that in my mind. Whoever this is, if someone cuts me off on Sam Cooper and tells me I'm number one, there are certain things I need to go through my head. So I don't go to a bad place with that person, but I remind myself they're created by God, they're loved by God, and I need to treat them like that. Um... 
I believe my calling, I believe the church's calling is not to go through the world trying to change people's minds. The calling on us is to reflect the heart of God in every situation we are in. Number three is this. We need to shrink the proximity. A lot of people have talked about this um, recently. Of How do we shrink the proximity? Jesus did this where there seemed to be heaven and earth and they were separated. And Jesus shrunk the proximity. And many of us need to do this. One of the best ways for you to be educated and informed about immigration is get to know some. And there are a lot of efforts right here in our city. Some of my good friends lead them. Rondell Trevino, uh, become a really good friend of mine, leads the Immigration Project. Rondell's doing a great job trying to biblically inform people. The Refugee Empowerment Program uh, is a good place to just look it up on the website. Get involved in some kind of way. Or Los Americas. There are a number of organizations that can help inform and educate us. Number four is this. This is so big for us. Faithfully navigate dual citizenship. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And most of us in this room are also citizens of the United States. And the driving question in your life cannot be what is best for America. It's a good question. I'm not trying to do away with the question. But the driving, fo- the driving question in Christians' lives, and the people of God, the driving question for them has to be, what is the kingdom of God desire of me? What is my part in the kingdom? And from that, we think about what is best for America. Never the other way around. I wanted to jump into this series, Taboo, because I believe so much in the church. And I want the church not just to be a place where we come into a room as isolated people, disengaged from the world, but I want to help equip the church to move into the city, to move into our neighborhoods, to be the people of God, to navigate certain issues in a way that honors the heart of God, to learn what it means to walk alongside of our neighbors, helping them to make the very best decisions for their lives and for their future. So may God help this church be the people of God. Um, We're going to go to communion. And we're going to take the bread and the cup. And then after the offering, I'm going to step back up and we're going to offer what we do most Sundays. Some kind of time of response for you and a time of prayer. But I want to begin, I want to lead straight into communion. Because I think communion is the best place. The table is the best place for us to be reminded of who we are in God. And for us to be formed by God to know what it means to be his people in the world. So Kip's going to, and the praise team are going to lead us in a song. And then we will pray over the bread and the cup.